Great, Alex, thank you. <laughs> also, that was like the first five minutes of my message this morning, so <laughs> got that taken care of. <laughs> um, Becca Jackson, that's my name. I, I, I will, actually, yes. So, Alex, you were super close. We, um, Bobby and I met, oh, I met Brittany when we first moved to Northwest Indiana. It's been, we figured it out, that math, at least. It's been about 15 years since we met. We have been really good friends for, like, 13, 12 years of those 15 years. Um, and Wes was an intern. He was a worship intern um, with Bobby at, that, at Suncrest up in Northwest Indiana. And out of that, he... Uh, just stayed. He was one of those interns that came to intern and then never left. He just joined the staff and fell right in with everybody. Um, and so I knew Wes as a college age, trying to figure out how to be an adult um, intern, which um, is really, it's really great 15, however many years later, because I didn't do that math, to see him as like a grown adult leading a church and married to one of my best friends. Um, it's really great. Um, but when Wes asked me, yes, Brittany was not interested, but I adore Brittany. And so when Wes was like, hey, Becca, it was after a Thursday night service, and we were like, I can picture the whole thing. And he was like, what do you think if, do you think Brittany would be interested if I asked her out? And I was like, just like Alex said, in my brain, I was like, this is amazing. But I kept my cool, and I was like, yeah, I think, I think she'd be totally up for that. I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt to ask. And and it was a few months, I think, before he got around to asking Brittany. And so the whole time I'm like, when's she going to ask her? When's she going to ask her? And then she called one day and was like, hey, Wes Blackburn, ask me out on a date. And I was like, are you kidding me? So, and the rest is history. And they're together. And you're all here. And we're all here together. So I do like to claim a little piece of responsibility in that. Um, but a uh, little bit about us, just super fast. We, um, I'm married to the handsome and talented worship leader from this morning. We have six kids right now. Um, we have five bio kids, and we're fostering one little girl right now. Um, and I'm like, I guess I was going to tell that whole story, but I don't have to anymore. Thanks, Alex. I, um, I'm super thankful to be here. I know Bobby said this this morning, that we've been praying for this church for a long time um, because of our connection with Wes and Brittany. And um, I would love to say thank you to all of you for taking care of them and accepting them and, and just doing all of this along with them and, and making them part of your family. It does my best friend heart good to know that there are people down here that love them and want the best for them too as they figure out all of this church stuff. Well, um, last week, Wes presented to you guys a map of how God apprentices us to Jesus that when God wants us to deepen our relationship with Jesus, that oftentimes happens in one of four ways. Either it'll happen um, as we cultivate our personal relationship with him, as we contribute through serving, as we care about others who are far from God, or as we connect in relationships with others where truth meets life. And this is, I think, such a great framework. Is that my mic? No, still my mic. Keep talking. Tell us Keep talking, he says. <laughs> Um, I think that those four areas are such a great framework for us to see how God's working around us and in us and even through us. I'm excited for you guys that you're going to take the summer and just spend some time developing those four C's more intentionally. And I'm thankful that Wes asked me to come and talk this morning about connection because that's probably my favorite piece of those four C's. Um, but before I get into everything, let's go ahead and let's pray together. 
Father, we are thankful for relationships. We're thankful for the way that you work and weave us together. Thankful for the design that you have for us as, um, as members of the body um, and the way that you've designed us to care for and interact for each other. Please um, open our hearts towards each other and towards those possibilities this morning as we explore your plan for us. Well, my husband and I live in Cincinnati. More specifically, we live on the west side of the Cincinnati of Cincinnati, and the west side of Cincinnati is a strange place. I like to think of it as kind of the Bermuda Triangle of the city. Once you go in, you don't come out. People who are born there stay there forever. They live and they die there. Actually, many people on the west side live within blocks or just doors of their parents and their siblings for their entire life. And many of them are Catholic, so they have like 17 brothers and sisters, and they make up entire neighborhoods. It is a strange phenomenon. But one thing that always happens when you meet somebody from the west side of Cincinnati, the first question that they'll ask you is, oh, hey, what school did you go to? And the first time somebody asked Bobby that question, he said, oh, I went to Cincinnati Bible College. And they just kind of looked at him with this puzzled look and said, no, ma'am, I meant what high school did you go to? And this was a grown man. He was probably in his late 40s or his 50s. And what we've learned is that that is what everyone is concerned about, no matter their age on the west side of Cincinnati. Is they want to know where you went to high school. And that seems strange to us, but on the west side of Cincinnati, everybody that you went to high school with is still your best friend. Connections run deep and they run long on the west side of Cincinnati. It would be nice if all of our connections were so easy to make and easy to keep, but that's not usually the story for any of us. Usually, making meaningful conversations is a struggle for a lot of us. And I wonder sometimes why that is. Why do we have, if we were created for this, if this is how we were made, why do we have a hard time with this? And I think it's probably a couple of things. Busyness is definitely one of those things. You know, if somebody asks me if we could get together, share some coffee, lots of times I'm like, I just have a lot of work to do. I'm not going to be able to do that soon. Or let's do this small group thing, but let's do it in an, the next season when things slow down or the next semester when I don't have so much work to do. I have six kids. I have a job. I have a husband. I have a super old house that's always falling apart. I have projects that I start all the time, and they never seem to get finished. Busyness is my go-to excuse when it comes to connection. Social media has always worked against us in this area. We feel like we're connecting with people, and it gives us that quick burst, like we're great friends with 934 people. But in reality, we're just seeing and sharing the best of each other um, through like quirky comments and cropped photos. We're not really connecting with anyone. And then COVID didn't help, right? For months, so many of us were separated. We were isolated from the people who were closest to us. Some of us, it was even over a year. And now we have to relearn that art of connection as we come out the other side of the pandemic. But I don't think that any of these are really the reason that we avoid connecting with others. I think the real reason that we don't make space for connection is that we're afraid. We're afraid of what it's going to cost us. And not so much the time that it's going to cost us, but the safety that it's going to cost us. Because connection requires honesty. Honesty about who we are, what we think, what we believe. And it requires us to set ourselves out there and let the people around us receive us. And it requires us to do the same for others. So it's work. And it usually feels like hard, scary work, so we do what we can to avoid it, sometimes even without meaning to. 
Has anybody read the story Robinson, Robinson Crusoe? Yes, anybody seen the movie? Anybody seen Castaway, Tom Hanks? Okay, it's basically the same thing, okay? <laughs> so Robinson Crusoe, his dad wanted him to be a minister. He did not want to be a minister. He wanted to live out on the sea, and that's the path that he chose. But shortly after he headed out to sea, he ended up shipwrecked on an island completely by himself. But it was a beautiful island, and he was able to put together things from the shipwreck and things that he found on the island to make a safe home for himself. He had all the things that he needed to thrive and survive, except for other people. And the interesting thing in the story is that in the beginning, this, the island is described as this beautiful, idyllic location and how, how lucky he was that he landed there and how it supplied all of his needs. And it was described as a really great, good place. But towards the end of the book, the description of the island changes and it becomes desolate and dark and ugly. And nothing about the island changes. The island remains the same throughout the story, but his feelings of isolation impact the way that he sees the island, and it becomes an ugly, lonely place simply because he's there by himself. And I think that this story speaks to a super basic human need for community. We were created to be in community. We were created to be in community with others and with God himself. If we look at the creation story, there's seven times in the story of creation that God looks at what he made and he says that it's good. He says the sky was good, the land was good, their separation was good, the plants were good, the animals were good. He made man and he said this is very good. Which is why when we read in Genesis 2, something completely different stands out in stark contrast. He says, looking at this perfect creation, it's sinless, it's full of good things that he created himself where man enjoyed perfect community with God, his creator, he looked at creation and he said, it isn't good for man to be alone. The only thing in all of creation that was bad was man's solitude. Though perfect, sinless, and in complete perfect harmony with God, man was still lacking something. And so God created woman, and then together, both man and woman experienced the connection that they were created for. They experienced true community. And the thing about creation is that the world has changed so much around us, but our created needs haven't changed. And so we still need that connection that Adam and Eve needed when God created relationships in the very beginning. We see it all through scripture, especially in the New Testament. You've probably heard these verses. We call them the one another's. There's 100 of them in the New Testament alone. There's 96 ver 94 verses that they're um, sprinkled through. Four of them are even about kissing each other. But here are some that you may have heard. Uh, be at peace with one another. Accept one another. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Don't complain against one another. Confess your sins to one another. And then some that maybe you haven't heard. Don't bite, devour, or consume one another. Gently, patiently tolerate one another. And have equal concern for one another. Well, the Greek word that the New Testament authors use in these passages, it's alelon. And like many Greek words, our English translation, translation doesn't quite cover the meaning of this word. It's more than just each other or one another. 
it's describing a mutuality. So it's not just doing these things alongside of each other or to each other or for each other. It's actually doing these things with each other. Many of you might have heard that term, doing life together. And it's kind of a quippy phrase, but it really does get to more of the meaning of this um, Greek term, alelon. Bobby and I have good friends, Josh and Allie. And in the past six years, they've gone from an on-again, off-again college romance to a fully devoted marriage with four little kids. They were surprised with baby number one quickly after they got married, and she came into the world three months early with a very traumatic birth experience, spent 12 weeks in the ICU. They recovered from that and got their license to foster care. And when Amelia Jane was just two years old, they welcomed Angel into their home. And then 10 months later, they welcomed Angel's little brother into their home. And then just three months after that, they welcomed another little baby, Ace, into their home. And soon, they'll be welcoming Angel and DJ's new little sibling into their home too. So if you're keeping track, <laughs> they've been married for six years. They, have, they will have, any day now, five kids, ages five and under. Four of those kids will be two and under. And three of those kids will be babies not even one year old. I know, right? <laughs> this is how I feel <laughs> when I hear their story. It's overwhelming to even think of, but I have never seen anyone mature and grow and fully become who God has made them as fast and as fully as Josh and Allie have. Foster care is hard. Uh, Bobby and I have been doing it just for 18 months, and we just have one four-and-a-half-year-old beautiful little girl and it is hard. I cannot imagine the work that they have with four little babies that have come to them from somebody else's family and having infants just meeting their basic needs, feeding them bottles, changing their, changing their diapers, getting them on their schedules. And then on top of that, loving them in very unique and intentional ways to create a safe home for them at this time in their life. It's overwhelming and crazy for me to think about but the secret to Josh and Allie's success is their community. They have people that have come around them and have chosen to do foster care with them. A few years ago, I was introduced to a, excuse me, to a program called Care Communities. And Care Communities is a, is a beautiful help to foster families. What happens is when a family begins fostering a child, um, one of the, when a family begins fostering a child, other families commit to coming alongside them for 365 days. And everybody on that care community has a different job. Some people um, cook Allie and Josh meals every week. Some come and do their laundry. Some come and just fold the laundry that's piling on the table. Or they, um, they will take the kids to their appointments. They have a couple of college kids in their care community that step in so Josh and Allie can leave for days. And they do all of the care for the kids just as if they were Josh and Allie themselves. It's a really beautiful program. We were at their house on Memorial Day and watched these little kids just hop from one adult to another in their care community like they had no cares. They felt so safe and so loved in this community. They've really embraced the idea of that mutuality, that all along in their relationship. And they daily practice the art of the one another's as they love these kiddos. They live out the one another's in their relationships with each other. They bear with one another. They serve one another. They're hospitable to one another. 
They love each other. They're being kind to each other, and they're encouraging one another. But the real secret, the real secret for Josh and Allie is this. When a foster family agrees to have a care community, they have to do one of the hardest things. They have to be honest about the help that they need. The foster parent has to create a list of ways that people can come alongside them and do this foster care with them, ways that they can support them. Do they need babysitters? Do they need people to clean their house? Do they need people to do their laundry, drive their kids to school? Do they need tutors for their kids? They have to be honest about all the things that they can't do on their own and ask other people to do that. When someone asks us if we need help, um, usually the temptation is to say, oh, no, I think I got it, we'll be okay, right? It's hard to put ourselves out there, especially when we feel like we're inconveniencing others. Let people into the mess of your house, no thanks. Let people into the mess of your parenting, absolutely no thanks. You could help, I guess, sometimes, but first, let me clean everything up. Let me take a shower, let me get my house mostly clean up, let me make this super detailed grocery list for you. Thank God that Josh and Allie had learned to be honest about their needs. We went over to their house a couple of, weeks, uh, a couple of months ago and sat with them. It was 8 o'clock at night. We thought the kids would be in bed. We were looking forward to just hanging out and catching up. But the two babies were not interested in sleeping, and so they were awake. And it had been a rough day. The house was a mess. There were like 54 bottles on the counter that needed to be cleaned. Dinner was still all over the table, the high chairs, plural, and all over the floor. But we just passed those babies around all night. We talked with each other. We cried about foster care. And it was an amazing night. Josh and Allie were so honest and comfortable in their reality that we felt comfortable in that honesty of their reality. And we got to serve one another, love one another, and encourage one another that night. The temptation that we all have in connecting with each other is only to offer the best parts of ourselves but when we offer ourselves just as we are, the relationships end up being deeper, more meaningful, more life-giving. But in order to do that, we have to be vulnerable. Yeesh. That is sometimes an ugly word. Sometimes that word makes us feel super uncomfortable, but that's where we're going to spend the bulk of this morning today. Josh and Allie had to be vulnerable with the people around them in order to foster those connections and carry out who they were created to be in an effective way. When we think of vulnerability, we think of sharing our deepest, our deepest fears, our darkest secrets, our most, our weakest moments. Brene Brown, who's the actual expert of vulnerability, she says that vulnerability is the uncertainty, it's risk, it's emotional exposure. Even just talking about vulnerability sometimes gives me a tightness in my chest and makes me nervous. I've seen some of your reactions as I said some of these words, and I know that some of you are feeling the same way. So when we're so uncomfortable with something, what do we do with it? We avoid it. And we all avoid it in our own ways, but I think there's some things that we generally all do, okay? First, we make uncertain things certain. We make schedules, we make plans, we make lists, we make judgments and rules so that we can control all of these things that are making us feel uncomfortable and at risk. Or two, we perfect. If everything looks good, if everything looks put together, then there's nothing we need to ask help for. There's no risk or exposure involved in perfection. 
And then three, well, actually, before we do this, let's take a second, because we haven't done this this morning, and go ahead and just say hello to someone around you and ask them how they're doing. You guys are super quiet. So we make certain things, we make uncertain things certain. We perfect, or we do what I heard several of you just do now. We pretend. When somebody says, hey, how you doing? What do we say? Fine. Great, fine, good. Are we always great, fine, good? Yes. <laughs> Wes, you got to keep listening. <laughs> no, we are not. We pretend. We pretend like things are okay in an attempt to avoid being vulnerable. It's so hard for us to be vulnerable. And that's because Brene Brown's right. It's uncertain. It's risky. It's, it's complete exposure. Vulnerability is often attached to the word shame. And shame, all shame is, is the fear of disconnect. If I, if I share this, if they know, will they, will, I want to, will they want to be connected to me? If people know this, will I even be worthy of connection? We've got these doubts and these fears floating around us as we approach so many everyday, normal, vulnerable acts. Um, somebody posted up on Facebook, uh, asked the question, could you define vulnerability? Or more specifically, what makes you feel vulnerable? And they were quickly overwhelmed with the amount of responses and the normalcy of responses. Some of them said, having to ask my spouse for help because I'm sick and I can't do it on my own. Initiating things with my husband or initiating things with my wife. Being turned down, asking someone out, waiting for my doctor to call me back getting laid off, or laying people off. These are everyday normal things. These aren't extreme, um, extreme things that come around once in a while. These are things we do every day, and we're feeling vulnerable when we have to do them. So for just a second, think about that question. What makes you feel the most vulnerable? For the sake of the message, I'll go ahead and share with you what makes me feel vulnerable. I feel most vulnerable when I have to admit that I've done something wrong. Now, it doesn't matter if it's a simple, honest mistake or if it's a purposeful sin. I am feeling the most exposed, the most vulnerable when I have to tell somebody that I did something wrong. So think about that, what makes you feel most vulnerable. If you don't know about what it is specifically right now, don't worry, we're going to come back to that later, and I'll encourage you to spend some time on that this week. So if it's so hard, so scary, if it's so uncomfortable, why should we even bother with vulnerability? Well, I think vulnerability offers us a few really beneficial things. It offers us accountability, a deep connection with others, and it offers us freedom. Vulnerability normalizes the conversation around sin and failure. There's a verse in Galatians, and probably all of you have heard part of this verse before. It's actually one of the one another's that we find in the New Testament. It says, in Galatians 6.2, carry each other's burden, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. 
It's a super comforting, comforting verse, right? You can find it on sympathy cards. We read it in devotional, devotionals targeted to sad times. It's on plaques. It's on pillows. It makes you feel good. But let's read it in context. Galatians chapter 6 starts out by saying in verse 1, Brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. And then here it is. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks it's something, they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. When we place this verse back in the context, we can see that Paul wasn't talking about carrying our burdens of sadness, and that is something that we should do, and Scripture speaks to that in other times, but right here, Paul is asking the Galatians to carry each other's sin burdens. Bobby and I were just talking about this a few weeks ago. It's always felt wrong for me to admit that I'm a sinner, that I struggle with temptation, that I do things that are wrong. Are any of you, are any of you in this room sinless? Any of you never struggle with temptation? You can raise your hand if that's you. I would raise my hand. (laughs) But you're not going to because we all sin, right? I could go to every church in Tallahassee this morning and ask the same question and get the same response. Every church in the state of Florida get the same response to that question. Because we have all sinned, Romans tells us, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We all struggle with temptation. So why am I so afraid to admit it? Why is everybody so afraid to admit it? Why are we embarrassed to admit that we do the same exact thing that every single other person on this planet does? Why is there so much shame when we try to admit that we're just like them? One of the, huge, the com- key components of Alcoholics Anonymous is the sponsor relationship. A sponsor can be called at any time to encourage, to support, and to remind a recovery, recovering alcoholic of their desire to stay sober. It's a huge part of the program's success, having someone who knows your struggle, who has heard you say, this is who I was, or maybe who I am, but it's not who I want to be, is in the perfect place to help you move forward in healing and freedom. It's actually one of the things that they say out loud at AA, I am powerless to do this on my own. Well, we have a word for that in the church. It's called accountability. And it's one of the huge blessings of vulnerability. When we know about each other's struggles, we can help carry that burden with one another. We can encourage them with prayer and with the word, and we can remind them of their desire to follow God and walk along them in the most, alongside them in the most honest way. The relationships that form out of that vulnerability, they experience a deeper level of trust. Relation, mm, vulnerability deepens the bonds in those relationships because it shows that you're trusting them with your most secret self, and in turn, it gives them the chance in to, return, to respond in kind and restore you gently, just like Paul says to do in Galatians. It's in this vulnerability that we see the picture of that mutuality we read about in the Alelong word that we find in all those one another's. And lastly, I think vulnerability brings us freedom. We might have heard it called abundant life, Brene Brown, that Vulnerability expert, she calls it wholehearted living. And it happens when we stop holding on to that person that we think we need to be, that we need to present to others, 
and we start living as the person that we actually are because then we can become the person who God wants us to be. There is so much freedom in that truth. In my family, I'm the not detangler. I'm not really sure how I got that reputation, but the kids come to me whenever something gets like super tangled up or super knotted, like their shoes or yarn or something. Well, Silas, our youngest, he came to me this week, our youngest boy, he came to me this week and he said, Ma, Madre, I need you to work your magic. And he handed me his sweatpants <laughs> that had been tied probably for like six years and been through the wash a hundred times. I mean, it was a rock solid knot. And we had to work on that for a long time, but we got it out. He was able to keep his pants up, keep them from falling down. Well, our sin works the same way. Actually, in Hebrews, it's described kind of just like a knot. In Hebrews 12, it says this. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. That Greek word for entangles here, it's empleco. It's two Greek words meaning in and weave. People would use this word to describe a sheep that got caught in a thorn bush. So picture that in your head. A sheep, it's thick, rough, fluffy wool stuck in this thorn bush and it's bleeding and it's working against it and it's trying to get it out. It's calling for its shepherd. It's calling for the other sheep, but it cannot get itself out on its own. And actually what's happening is as it struggles, it's getting more caught up in the thorn bush. It needs someone to come and cut it free, someone to hold the thorns back so that it can come out. And that's what we need. It's the same with our sin. We need someone that can come and help us out of the sin that's entangling us. Someone that can help us find freedom from that sin that's entangling us. Well, my whole life, my whole life I've struggled with honesty. I'm 44 years old and I cannot remember a time, even when I was a child, when I didn't struggle with being honest. I'm the world's biggest, most desperate people pleaser, and so it's really important to me to present my best and perfect self to the people around me. I always have to make myself look better and more perfect than I actually am. As a child, my parents bore the brunt of this struggle, and then when I was a teenager, I tried to make everyone on every side of me happy with, with me, and that only led to a, lie of a, a life of ridiculous amounts of lies, and I was either you know, panicking, making sure I was keeping all the lies straight, or I was all by myself wondering when I was going to get found out. It was a miserable way to live. When I went away to college, my surroundings changed, which made it a lot easier to not, or made it a lot easier to change that pattern, at least for a little bit, at least for a little while. Because honestly, it wasn't that I stopped lying, it was that I stopped having things I felt I needed to lie about. And you know, as life goes, I ended up sinning again and again. And those patterns, they started to creep back in. I'd cover things up with half-truths, avoidance, distraction, whatever I could do to keep it a secret. In my marriage, this came out around finances. I'd pay a bill late, and to avoid the conflict of telling Bobby about that, I wouldn't do anything right away. I'd tell myself, well, I'll just get to that. I'll make sure I pay it before the next bill comes. But um, there was never just one bill. And I couldn't say no when we wanted to spend money on other things because I, was, I didn't want to admit 
that I had paid these bills late, so the money that I was setting aside to pay, we were spending on just normal things. And it started to snowball, and it happened for a couple of years. It was just a few small bills at first, and then it was every single bill except for the mortgage. I kept making up plans in my head about how I was going to fix everything, I was going to pay everything, get everything current, write everything down, get everything worked out, and then I was going to present that to Bobby and confess, and so that I could say, I did this, I'm sorry, but everything's okay right now. And that was how I would ease my guilt, ease my anxiousness. I'd wake up in the middle of the night in hot sweats. I had no idea at that time that I was actually having panic attacks. My soul, my heart, and even my body were feeling the prison of the sin that had totally and completely entangled me. There was a moment I couldn't keep it quiet any longer, and through sobbing tears, I told Bobby about the mess I had created, that I was so sorry, but that I couldn't fix it on my own. And he was so great, he reassured me that whatever the mess looked like, we would fix it, and we would be fine, and we were. We actually were even better than fine, eventually. There were some really hard conversations and some hard days that followed that. I needed to be completely honest in order for us to walk forward in health and freedom, and that level of vulnerability wasn't just something I was uncomfortable with, it was something I had avoided my entire life. I had a couple of good friends that I talked to about it all, and Bobby asked if he could share with one of his friends. And those people became our help during that time. The work was something that I had to do, but those friends helped us ask the right questions, and they helped us see the next best steps. They prayed for us, and they sat with us some hard times. I felt like a sheep who had been cut free from the thorn bush. But some of those thorns were buried so deep. A 25-year pattern was hard to cut free all at once. So fast forward a couple of years to the past couple years of my life, and honesty is still a struggle for me, but it's a struggle that has been put out in the open. Um, my closest friends, Bobby, they know this is a struggle for me. Bobby's really great at asking me clarifying questions to make sure I'm being honest with myself, first of all, and then with others around me. Um, Bobby had taken over the finances. He's in charge of managing the, the bank account and everything. But every once in a while, a bill would come in on the side, and my tendencies would pop up again. I'd pay a bill late, or I'd just forget about it, and I would do the same thing that I did 10 years ago. I would lie about it. Well, we were preparing for our foster care license. as. And as part of that promise process, you have to show uh, several months of paid bills to show that you're financially stable before you walk into that. And while we weren't actually behind on any bills at that moment, I knew that we had been throughout the past year. Nothing major, but enough that I felt like when I fill out this paperwork and we turn it in, everybody's going to find out, Bob's going to find out. And there were a couple of weeks that were a real internal struggle on my side. Lots and lots of tears, lots of veiled comments and conversation, kind of feeling out how safe it was going to be for me to take this. We were camping, and Bobby and I went for a walk. And it was almost like the words were trying to climb out of my throat, and I just kept shoving them down. But eventually, Bobby just stopped, and he made me stop, and he looked at me, and he said, Beck, if you've cheated on me, just tell me. <laughs> and I can laugh about that now, but I'll tell you what. <laughs> okay. 
in that moment, I realized how bad this looked and how horrible it must have been feeling inside of me, what I was communicating to him. It was obvious to him that I was carrying something that I was so ashamed of, that I was so nervous about. And cheating on each other is the last thing either one of us would ever think about, but it seemed like it was that bad. And honestly, and that's what we're talking about today is being honest, it felt that bad to me. It felt horrible to admit that I had betrayed him in the, sem the same way for a second time. But of course, for a second time, he handled that well. He was disappointed, and we had to have some really difficult talks coming out of that. Less about the finances and more about the honesty and the vulnerability that needed to be in our relationship. But since that day, that very day, I've experienced extreme freedom that's so connected with that vulnerability in that moment. It didn't all come at once. I didn't feel full freedom in that moment. It actually felt really, it was hard. It was hard to uh, work through that. But the, the weight of the secret and the weight of feeling like I was completely alone was lifted in that moment. And just like when you start a new workout routine, that first workout, you know, it's so hard for the first couple of weeks and your body hurts and it feels like it's revolting against you. But the more you flex your muscles, the more you practice those reps, it gets, you start to feel the benefits and the healing and the release of that tear on your body. And it's the same thing with vulnerability. I found that the more I practiced that, the more I flexed my vulnerability muscles, the more I have experienced and felt that freedom. And so there's no more secrets for me. It's tempting, and I, I still do. I still want to lie about things when I mess up, and I'll probably always struggle with that. That's the nature of sin. Sometimes we're healed completely from our temptations, and sometimes we're just given the strength that we need or the people that we need in that moment to overcome our temptations. And for now, that's my story. But also, I'm not doing it alone. I have Bobby. I have a couple of friends who know all of this part of me. They know my struggles, my sin, my regret, my shame. They know that it circles finances more than it circles anyone else, anything else. And they know that I feel it most when I'm all by myself. They reach out, they remind me of who I am, they remind me of who I want to be, and they also remind me that I actually am that person already, that they can see that in me right now. They pray hard for me and they sit patiently with me. The freedom in my life that I experience as a result of that vulnerability is more than I thought it would be. I really did think I was destined to a life of half vulnerability, of being only mostly known by anyone, and that the only person who would really completely know me was God. But sharing my whole self with others has given me confidence in who I am. Taking those first steps were literally terrifying, but that's what's scary about vulnerability, right? It's a risk. Sometimes it's a huge risk. We're stepping out with our whole selves and we're asking others to catch us, like Paul says, gently and lovingly. What I've learned in those moments when I've stepped into vulnerability is that I absolutely need to trust the people around me. I need to be wise about choosing them and trust them completely. But even more than that, I need to trust God in those moments. I need to trust his word. I need to trust his design for relationship that he set up in the very beginning, that if he says, Beck, this is what you have to do to have true, true community in your relationship, then I have to trust that if I do that, 
I'll experience that freedom. We're going to watch a video for just a minute or two right here. It sums up what we've been talking about today, and it's by Brene Brown. Sorry, I keep doing that. It's Brene Brown. She's the vulnerability expert that I've mentioned a few times. And it's so we think vulnerability is weakness. So what we do is we wake up every morning and we armor up. And I can tell you some of the armor in here because I share some of it and I have some different armor. I armor up this way. Hey, if, I, if, I'm just in, if I'm feeling pretty human and normal, I say, hey, I'm Brene, nice to meet you. If I'm feeling insecure, I say, hey, Dr. Brene Brown. And if my sisters are with me, they'll go, Ooh. We armor up. What do you armor up with? What do you protect with? Not rhetorical. Humor. Clothing. Cool. Perfectionism. Sarcasm. Numbing. Holier-than-thou-ish stuff. Smarter, better. We armor up and we think, this is going to keep me safe. No one can get to me. No one can see me. No one can hurt me. But here's the problem. We do it to avoid grief. We do it to avoid uncertainty. We do it to avoid anxiety and shame and fear. But here's what happens. Vulnerability is the center of those difficult experiences that we want to avoid or minimize but it is also the birthplace of love, of belonging, of trust, of empathy, of intimacy. And I would argue that vulnerability is the birthplace of faith. You know, faith, for me, faith minus vulnerability and mystery is extremism. If you've got all the answers and there's nothing, there's no vulnerability, that's awesome, but don't call it faith, period. So when we armor ourselves up against the, the pain that comes with showing up like a sheep among the wolves, we also armor up against every meaningful thing that we want more of in our lives. Connection. How can I connect with you if I can't see you? How can I lead you if you don't know me? I don't want to be led by anyone perfect because I don't see in your eyes my story and my struggle. I need you to show up. When we asked people, what is vulnerability? Because I, I wasn't sure. You know, in the very short story, if you haven't seen the TED Talk, the very short story is I became a researcher to avoid being vulnerable because I have a bachelor's, master's, and a PhD in social work, and it took me that long to realize, oh, my God, I hate this work. <laughs> this is, like, super touchy-feely. I became a social worker to give you advice. I didn't be a social worker to, to walk with you on your journey. Um, <laughs> like... I know exactly where you need to go, and so take me 10 minutes, and then you just need to go on, go. So I became a researcher to avoid that whole thing. And then you can only imagine what happens to me in year seven of my research when vulnerability emerges as the most important component of wholehearted living. 
Like the bottom line is this, love and belonging, irreducible needs of men, women, and children. In the absence of love and belonging, there is always suffering. If you take the people I've interviewed over the last 12 years and divide them into two groups, people who have a strong sense of love and belonging and people who struggle for it, there's only one variable that predicts the difference, and that is simply this. People who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe that they are worthy of love and belonging, period. They are not richer, smarter. They don't have fewer divorces, bankruptcies, stories of trauma or addiction. They simply believe in the midst of struggle that they are worthy of love and belonging. To me, in my life, that's where God comes in. To me, God is the divine reminder of my inherent worthiness. That I am worthy of love and belonging. And how does that look on a day-to-day -day basis? Men and women with high levels of resilience to shame, high levels of wholeheartedness, who have a strong sense of worthiness, practice vulnerability. They walk into the arena, they live in the arena. of love and belonging or community find themselves in places of community. And aren't we lucky that we know the one who created us, the one who tells us that we're worthy, that we have his word and we know that it's truth when it says we are worthy of that love and belonging. This vulnerable step, this creating open and honest versions of ourselves with other people, vulnerability is going to help you create, like she said, it's the birthplace of those deep connections. You'll find a accountability with others and you'll find freedom in that vulnerability. You'll be able to stop holding on to that person that you think you're supposed to be and you can start living as the person who you are and become the person that God wants you to be. As we go here from this week, I want to give you a few questions to help you think more about this idea of vulnerability. The first one is super easy. If you had to place yourself on a vulnerability scale, one to 10, where would you be? One being Vulcan and 10 being like Taylor Swift and her many, many love songs, okay? Take a minute and think about that. What would your number be? All right, well, the second thing I'm going to ask you is just a little bit harder than that. I'd love for you to turn to someone near you and tell them your number. Don't say anything else about it. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to give any more words. Just your number. That's it. Go ahead. All right. I think, I think I saw everybody share. That, how did that feel? <laughs> 10, he's a 10. It felt horrible. Anybody thought it felt amazing? Anybody think like, oh, that wasn't too bad? Okay. Well, that's a baby step, and you totally knocked it out. You did it. You did it. Great job. First step towards vulnerability right there. Um, all of you know Brittany. And I was thinking about making you come up here, but I won't make you come up here. You're busy holding a baby, so I guess I'll let you sit in your seat. 
Um, Brittany and I have been friends for over a decade, and we have a group of friends who they, we live all around the world, or all around the country now, but we used to all live in the same area. We would vacation together, we, would, we did all the things together. Um, but inside of that little group of friends, I have what I call my brain trust, and it's three of those girls who I, I reach out to when I'm struggling, whether it's sadness or sin, or just questions, I don't know what to do in this situation, um, or I have things to celebrate about. Those are my, my three girls, my go-to, and Brittany is one of those girls. And for those of you who know Brittany, you know that she is the model of receiving people's vulnerability. She is a soft, safe landing. And because of Brittany, I have experienced so much freedom. I, a lot of it comes from my husband, but Brittany and those two girls, man, guys, I feel secure and confident about who I am because the way that they have received my vulnerability. So this week, and this is the harder part of what you're going to need to do this week, is I want you to find your Brittany. I want you to find that person that you can trust with a gentle, safe landing. Earlier this morning, we talked about um, what makes you feel vulnerable. What's that one thing? Find your Brittany. <laughs> so great. <laughs> Somebody get a picture of that? <laughs> we talked this morning about what makes you feel vulnerable. <laughs> Remember, it was for me, it was just admitting my mistakes, admitting my sin. I don't know what that is for you, and I'm not going to make you share that right now, but I am going to ask you to find your Brittany, find your person this week. If that person is in this room, you're at an advantage because they already know what you're doing, and they have to do it too. <laughs> If they're not in this room, you can totally set up this first conversation. Let them know what you're doing. Hey, text them a text or call them. Hey, I'm, I'm learning about trusting God in my vulnerability, and I'd really love to practice on you. Can we get together so I can share something with you? If you want to practice it even more than that, it's not about you. Don't worry. Um, and just set the stage for that conversation, and then sit with them this week and share that one thing that makes you vulnerable. I promise, and I know from personal experience, and I know from the truth that I read in his word, that when you do your relationships, when you connect honestly and vulnerably with others, you will experience that freedom in your relationships. Let's pray, and then we're going to worship again together. Father, we are, um, well, we feel lots of things around this, if we're being honest. When you um, ask us to so fully share our lives with other people it's it's scary but it's also full of hope this week as we leave this place and we step into vulnerable conversations and vulnerable relationships i pray that your spirit speaks that hope to us louder than the fear that's whispered at us pray that we can rest in the promise of freedom and the promise of your goodness this week as we step into that.